Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending June 2nd. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, esteemed food critic and writer Besha Rodell compares and contrasts the food scenes of Melbourne and Sydney. And Muzafa Ali and Jolian Hoff explore the enduring legacy of Afghan Kamalir descendants in Australia in their documentary Watanda, My Countrymen. Step ball change, K-step and rock the baby are just some of the moves I learned in my first boot scooting class this week. Simone Uboldi makes a very strong case with her review to get out and see Moroccan love story The Blue Kaftan at the cinemas while you can. And author and essayist Don Watson joins us to talk about his latest piece for the monthly Heroes and Villains. Also, book reviewer Fee Wright introduces us to local author Megan Rogers' new novel The Heart is a Star. For Breakfast's TV take, we rumour on the slew of recent finales and look back at when formerly good shows go bad, but we start the pod investigating the ethics of calling dibs and shotgun post-puberty. Melbourne's own Triple R. Over the past two weeks or so, maybe a bit under, I've had um, dibs called on me mm. several times. Several times. Several times. Because I would say within that same time span, I've had I've had no dibs. You've had no dibs. What about you, Daniel? No, no, it's been a dib-free zone in my life. It, it has been largely a dib-free zone in my life, or most of my adult life. Um, so, yeah. so we're entering into the dib era. Yeah, and I'm just. I'm curious to know how, I mean, are we doing this as adults? Is this kind of acceptable behaviour? The scenario is it's my boyfriend who's been calling dibs. I bought RVG merch when they did a gig here. I bought a hoodie and he had already had a T-shirt or he has a T-shirt. So now he feels the need to call dibs. If there were if there were make wardrobe decisions in the morning, and both of you had some concept of wearing the RVG merchandise, yes, he has called dibs. Now, obviously, I understand wearing matching kind of items as um, a couple is a whole other can of worms. I am obviously not for that, but I'm not sure how I feel about claiming dibs as an adult. It's such a brash kind of confident move so yeah did i did i clarify what it is for those who are not aware it's just like claiming something you would do it as a kid maybe you call dibs on the window seat you call dibs on a final or last piece of pizza or something like that definitely dibs yeah and then it becomes a definitive kind of uh decision making tool for childhood well it's done then apparently it's essentially saying that's mine Mm. give it yeah, I think, say, for the front seat or the window seat, mm. the, if you if you call dibs the night before, it doesn't work. The, it has to be close to the event. And so <laughs> yeah, you why. can't call dibs in advance, like two weeks in advance. It does yeah. be stretching the rules. And so with a piece of clothing, I don't know how early the – what is the earliest you can call dibs on a piece of clothing? Is it the day before or is that too early? I think definitely it's way too early. I'd say it's got to be max within two hours of leaving the house. Okay. Yeah. But then it, if we look at this example, um, this scenario specifically, there's a whole lot of issues. He called dibs on it the other night, but it was cold. I'm like, it's a T-shirt. I wanted to wear the hoodie. It's, I was going to basketball. It was perfect basketball attire. He was coming along. And I was like, 
that's when you want to wear a hoodie when you, you're going to play sport and you most likely want to take your jacket off. Yes. <laughs> so I was like, jacket must come off. Well, the hoodie also provides a sort of visual focus that you associate with the intensity of people preparing for combat on the court. Exactly. Quite so. Quite so. Yeah, you're right. It should have been kind of my well-being, my body temperature, you know, making conditions ideal for me to perform on the court. I shouldn't be worried about <laughs> changing my jumper. Absolutely not. Was there an intimation that this was a playful sort of gambit, not necessarily like a definitive, this is what is going to happen, but more... No, know. it was like, I've called dibs. I, I, think, think, he said the, dibs. I no. think he said these are the rules or... Yeah, he said something more or less to indicate he was taking a pretty hard line on it. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, is that what it is? Or no, you, I think I mentioned you wouldn't even take your jumper off. And he said something like, uh, well, you should have called dibs then. Because mm, you, you do raise a very important point. Dibs is so founded in, how do I say this? Like there's no fairness at the foundation of, no, of calling right. dibs. And so it does seem like an unreasonable mm, kind of proposition. Go. Yeah, see, it's emerging. We think it's a bit – there's no place for it after <laughs> I think a, it's a certain age maybe. I think it's very funny. If someone calls dibs, it, it kind is. of it makes me smile when you mentioned it, how mm. many dibs have been called. But then when it becomes used as a tool for conflict resolution mm. or for kind of critical decision-making processes, it seems to fall apart a little bit on those criteria of fairness. Yeah, it could be – it like it could cause more conflict. Could cause more it's quite conflict. infuriating. It, yeah, it's got like a brashness and an entitled tone to it, mm. doesn't well, it? When Dibs casts a pall over your childhood, I think it does kind of add a, a layer or dimension of stress to everyday encounters. Exactly. Mm. Everything becomes a competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are winners and there are losers. There's a listener that says it's a is apparently it's a classic Dibs rule. Number one, in fact, <laughs> uh, one that you have to be able to see the item on the day to be able to call dibs on it. Okay. So if you if you can't see the if you can't if the item isn't in line in side side of vision, can you call dibs? Yeah. I think you I think you could call dibs on a car seat approaching the front door. <laughs> approaching the front okay. Uh, yeah, I think I like that rule. That would be – it could be tricky for the clothing items, but, look, that adds a whole other element, doesn't it? Yeah. Bring a spare jumper, pack a jacket. It's also Philip Lowe, the Reserve Bank Governor. I did not anticipate him coming up in a conversation about dibs. Yeah, good. he's uh... – he encourages everybody to live together again and, and you know, that'll solve the housing crisis. And so if we all do compress and pack and fill out of spare rooms, I think a golden age of dibs is upon us. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Interlude culinary critic Besher O'Dell is here to set the cat among the bin chickens, as it were. Morning, Besher. Good morning. Uh, what have you gone and started? <laughs> <laughs> it was not me, it was my editor. So I'll not take the blame for it. Um, but yeah, uh, my editors asked me to uh, write an essay defending Melbourne from um, the New South Wales tourism <laughs> folks who said that Sydney's food was better. And um, our critic in Sydney, Callan Boyd, 
boys did the opposite. So we wrote dueling essays about um, which city was better. Mm. And it's, I guess it's important to interrogate your bias and not rest on your laurels as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I am fully biased and I will say, that, you know, like I, I spent half of my life kind of pining away for Melbourne on the other side of the world. So, you, you know, I could just, I have written countless essays about <laughs> why Melbourne is amazing. And, um, but I do think that it's interesting to really kind of think about why these two cities are great. And um, I mean, that's really what it's all about in the long run is both of us saying our city is fantastic and they both are fantastic cities, but Melbourne's better. <laughs> Absolutely. And it does become a, an opportunity to reflect and celebrate and certainly it's very good natured discussion across both of the essays. But I suppose you're talking about your passion for the local culinary scene. Where did you begin when you were thinking about planning this response? Well, I really started with, I, I have been always obsessed with the idea of a sense of place. And I um, have worked as a critic in uh in North Carolina, in Atlanta, in Los Angeles, and then globally, and also kind of as a national critic in Australia. And for me, the way that a city really stands out, or a restaurant really stands out in a city, is if you know where you are when you are eating there. Um, and, you know, I had a chance a couple of years ago, which was wild, to um, pick the 30 best restaurants in the world for food and wine. And I actually traveled the whole world finding them. Amazing. And um, I often didn't pick the very fancy kind of places that often end up on those kinds of lists because they could have been anywhere. They were just all kind of trying to be Noma, <laughs> you know, and Noma is Noma. And it ended up on that list because you can tell where you are when you're at Noma. So I was thinking about that, really, what is it about a city that, you know, you walk into New York or into Paris or you, you can tell where you are, you immediately get that sense of, oh my God, I'm in this, I'm immersed in this place. And um, I think Melbourne does that really well. And I think it's the thing about Sydney that I struggle with and struggled with when I was covering Sydney is I I couldn't really tell what its personality was. Um, and I feel as though it's almost trying to be like, it's trying to be like London or it's trying to be like New York or the, the restaurants, even in Callan's essays that he was tapping as the, you know, we're so great because we have these New York style places. And it's like, well, New York has that. So what does Sydney have? And Sydney has some fantastic restaurants, but um, I feel as though it is lacking a little in that sense of place. Yeah. And your what favorite restaurant of all time in Sydney was at the back back of a hallway in a casino. Yeah, absolutely. And it was an amazing restaurant, um, a Momofuku Sierba, but it, it, it really could have been anywhere except for the, some of the ingredients that he was using, but he would have kind of utilized the best ingredients wherever he was, no matter what. So, um, and you know, uh, a Caribbean American chef, American ownership in a casino. I mean, I'm glad it was there for the time that it was. Yeah. I'm glad I got to eat there, but it did not feel like Sydney. Yeah. So what are the factors at play, do you think, that go into a Melbourne restaurant versus a Sydney restaurant having and embodying a sense of place? Well, um, I, I do think that there's just a lot more history um, for Melbourne to draw on, uh, you know, just in terms of our longstanding um, Italian immigrants and the cafes that they have here and all of that stuff. You know, there's just always been this kind of, we sit on the 
you know, footpath and drink wine culture in Melbourne, that um, Sydney is a much more beachy city. It's much more, um, you know, based around style and sports and, and all of that stuff. So it just doesn't have that same history to draw upon. I also think that um, there's just a lot more single owner operators here and um, small businesses, whereas a lot of the restaurants in Sydney that people point to are owned by big groups. And, you know, places like Maryvale, uh, the, those guys are great at what they do. They they make these kind of fantasy restaurants that are so beautiful. But again, it's kind of, it, it doesn't have that um, kind of sense of one person's vision that it's, it's just, you know, it's kind of like this placemaking almost hipster disney thing you know that that is great again and really fun but um but doesn't have that kind of it's ingrained in the soul of the city yeah what are the best arguments do you think for the sydney dining scene um they have a couple of the kind of world's best chefs there (laughs) i mean some of you know um the most exciting food in australia absolutely is happening in sydney and um you know they have i think that their very high end fine dining scene is um is a bit stronger than ours um you know (laughs) that callan argued well we have i don't know what it is four three hat restaurants and you only have three or whatever. I'm like, well, maybe it's because I'm tougher than you. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but I also, I don't think that's the way most people really eat. (laughs) No, You know, like those types of restaurants, they're great and I love them, but um, I would much rather live in a city where the everyday food is stellar than the everyday food is fine and or you know there's a lot of expensive restaurants and look sydney especially in the suburbs um their thai food their laotian food um it's kind of it kind of can't be beat we have started to get some of that here now and that's great but it's still not anywhere Mm. close to what they have and can i also ask in terms of obviously you know, playfully reflecting on some of the differences, but in terms of the exchange that's happening between the two cities, I'm kind of curious about your perspectives of what you're seeing, maybe collaboratively. Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, maybe bias again, but I do see what is happening has what has always been happening in Sydney as now somehow happening in Melbourne, but I don't see a lot of the opposite. And I think it's partly because it's much harder to import what we do well. Um, you know, again, we're now getting great Thai food, great Korean food. Um, but like, you know, you can't transplant Melbourne's pubs to Sydney, you know, and, um, and unfortunately I think kind of pokies has decimated a lot of what there was already, um, in terms of neighborhood pubs in Sydney. And, and thankfully we haven't let that happen as much here. Um, you know, those types of things, it's really, it's, it, it's not an easy thing for Sydney to just be like, we're going to have all these, you know, hundred year old pubs that are all of a sudden going to be great. And Melbourne has always retained that. But I mean, obviously, you know, there is a lot of exchange of ideas and, um, and we're now getting a lot more fantastic seafood, which, you know, it, it all used to go to Sydney. Um, and that's a whole other bucket of worms, but, um, so yeah, I, I think that, and we're starting to get, you know, Maryvale is coming to, uh, Victoria, they've opened a restaurant in Lawn and, um, and it's fantastic, uh, toddies. So, you know, it, we will continue that exchange, I think. What are your observations in terms of hospitality and service? Um, I would say it's more casual here. Um, I love 
what's happening with Australian hospitality in general. I mean, 20 years ago, I think it was pretty shoddy compared to the rest of the world. And um, and people used to say that's because in America in particular, people rely on tips and here not so much. I don't really think that that's the case. I think that it's much more that it was a profession that was looked down on until fairly recently. And now people really take pride in it. And, they, and so, um, you know, I, I think that there's this kind of, but again, Melbourne is really good at that kind of casual excellence that isn't super formal, isn't super showy, is just friendly and, but, but very professional. And I love that. Yeah. Just, we don't have any views. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and can I ask like, who's adjudicating this when, when, who has the final word? <laughs> <laughs> Who's there marking no the essays? Yeah. But, yeah, but we do have a um, – there is a poll, a reader poll Great. happening. Uh, if you go to The Age and look – and good or Good Food um, and look this up, you can, you can cast your own vote. Until very recently, Melbourne was just – kicking butt but uh now it's a, it's getting a little closer okay so, yeah you do make the point in the essay that if you remember the view then you haven't remembered the restaurant yeah i mean yeah i i was thinking about what are the iconic sydney restaurants and i was thinking about key which is a great restaurant but so much of what's amazing about it is you're looking at the sydney opera house and the moon's rising um icebergs in bondi again great restaurant but a lot of its charm too Mm. comes from the fact that you're looking at this beautiful sweep of ocean and the pool below it and everything and you know there there's something to be said for that but I feel as though you the restaurants in Melbourne where you feel like you really know you're in Melbourne you can be inside the restaurant you don't have to have a view of something Mm. you know where you are based on the way that it looks and feels and and the way that even the way that you're getting treated by the staff with that kind of warmth and that kind of almost family banter that you get and so I feel like yeah it's a it's a different it's a different kind of thing what's Melbourne's Achilles heel where are we vulnerable question I mean I do think I think that we're vulnerable in that we want to be more like Sydney in some ways, you know, I mean, just like in terms of, you know, I mean, it's funny because I I did get a fair amount of, you know, conversation happening on Instagram after this. um, And uh, one of the people was saying, you know, these restaurants that you're talking about are so old fashioned, like, have you heard of Chin Chin? And have you heard of all the, you know, and I was like, well, I'm not here to drop the name of every restaurant in Melbourne. I was making a point about you know, what we do really well. But, you know, I think that uh, lust for that shiny, big, fancy thing, um, we should examine that. I mean, some of those restaurants really are fantastic and they're super fun, but do they, what do they say about us? Mm-hmm. Like, are we, you know, uh, what are we looking for in those restaurants? And, and so that's that's maybe our Achilles heel. Mm. Well, the uh, verdict, is, verdict is, the verdict is in. Besha wins. Uh, <laughs> you're a powerful advocate. Yep. And uh, do you think we're are you going to get restless and leave us again? Oh no, I don't think so. I mean, I I I I'm pretty much in for the long haul. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, I would love to do other projects. And when I was doing World's Best Restaurants, I was based out of Melbourne. And you know, if anybody else wants to send me around the world again, I'm, I'm <laughs> totally up for it. But um, I will be coming home at the end of that. So. Uh, restaurant scene rivalry with Bessie Rydell. Thanks very much. Triple R.
Award-winning Australian filmmaker Jolien Hoff and Afghani-Australian refugee and photographer Muzaffa Ali are the creative force and subject behind the new documentary Watanda, My Countryman, which follows Muzaffa as he tracks the long-forgotten trails of Afghani Kamaliers through Australia's outback over 160 years ago. The film had its world premiere at the Adelaide Film Festival and begins screening around the country tonight. So to tell us about this creative and literal journey, the two writers and producers join us now. Muzaffa and Jolien, welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, how are you? It's, you? Thanks for having us. Oh, it's our pleasure. This is such a sweeping story. Where do you begin, both of you, in explaining what you've set out to achieve? Mm. Um, I, well, I think Mazaf and I have been friends for about 10 years since we met when he was a refugee in Indonesia. And uh, he's been living in Adelaide for about five or six years. And then at some point realised that Afghans have been here for 160 years, which was a, a real surprise to you and uh so he wanted to he's a photographer and wanted to have a photo journey and find out a little bit about who they were and what happened to their descendants and i, I you know can let him finish yeah for me this uh, it's a, a journey that i keep learning about modern australian history and uh, myself is uh, a re- former refugee and when i became refugee with my daughter and my family so my daughter was the fifth generation as a refugee. So displacement was a part of our life. And then when we were sent to Australia by, uh, through humanitarian, Australia's humanitarian program, and I arrived here, and then I was really keen to know more about the Australia because this is the place where uh, this is the last stop of the fifth generation. My daughter, Natika, is going to live here, and this is where we belong now. We are not going to be displaced again. So this is why this journey that I set off to learn more about um, the Afghans here uh, who came here in 1860 and their contribution and meeting their descendants was kind of a mirror for me to see what future holds for my daughter for the next generations. And this is where Julian and I, we set off for this uh, beautiful um, experience to meet the descendants of uh, those Afghan cameliers who came here. Um, and uh, how these descendants look like, how they are living and uh, who they are actually, how, how much they are holding this Afghani identity or being Aboriginal. So this is all about this identity and belonging in Australia. It's an extraordinary accomplishment and, as you say, a real journey of discovery and an incredible opportunity to share in this, uh, these learnings through watching the film. Can you tell, perhaps from your perspective, what were some of the more surprising aspects of the histories that you were uncovering? A lot. Each, uh, each I would say this is a long uh, journey that we took, and every metre of this journey was a learning curve for me. I learned about the most modern Australian history, where uh, it starts from the colonialism uh, and how the colonialism had impacts on the life of the... Uh, those cameliers in the first days in 1860s with limited rights, how they were working hard in Australia with limited uh, salaries, like £3 salary for in a month, and they couldn't go back in three years. They were not allowed to bring their wife. Instead of all these difficulties, some of them decided to stay in Australia. And uh, the power of uh, the tradition and culture, that how they transferred these aspects of tradition to the next generations up to now is amazing for me to see. Um, you can see this uh, when they pay respect to their uh, those cameliers who came here first. They go to their graves, pour water. They 
do curry cookups it's a charity for the uh, for the dead uh, souls dead ancestors that they pay respect to them and it, they don't know what they're doing but in uh, we do those practices in Afghanistan right now we do it now in Australia but when i explain them uh, why do you do this so they don't know but when i explain them they realize ah yeah that's why we are doing because we saw it our uh, grandfather was doing and our parents were doing this so we are doing now so that was really interesting for me to see that how these aspects of tradition have been transferred from one generation to next and the, to these descendants up to the fourth and fifth generation but the real question starts can it be transferable for the next generations because there is a big gap between the real uh, camellias who lived here and to the next generation in this modern world. Mm. Jolyon, when as a filmmaker and storyteller when did you realize that there was there was something here that you really want to delve into to commit to the documentary. Well, Mazafar and I have made we made a film when he was in uh, in Indonesia and started a refugee school there, the Staging Post. So I knew that you know we had the experience, and I knew that Mazafar was engaging and it was a way would be an engaging character. So when he when he discovered at this 160 year anniversary that the Afghan Gamaliers uh, had been here. I just thought I wanted to follow him because I guess I had an understanding of what he might find that he might know about Australia, about the the racism and the connection to stolen country, as uh, the stolen generation. And um, I thought, you know, he would be able to go in there with a new perspective. I think uh, sometimes it's an outsider who sees us for for who we truly are. And uh, as he as he went on this uh, this journey, I mean, it's it's fantastic for us as well. So many. I'm a suburban Australian kind of Aussie kid, you know, and so many of us really don't know anything about about this uh, history of Australia. Um, and the one thing that struck me when Mazafa went in there is he was very interested in who the people were because he had a cultural connection to it. It wasn't about the camels, and I think, thinking back to my primary school school books, it was about these exotic camels in the background, but Mazafa really wanted to know who these people were and what their effect on on um, on Australia was. Yeah, and I'm really interested in your experience, like, as a photographer. Like, how was it? Because at the heart of your photography is capturing people who really have been documented. What was that experience like of taking these, you know, people's portraits, photographs, and showing such interest in their history? Um, I think this is... Uh yeah, this is such a beautiful um, part of this journey that um, in Afghanistan I did the same. Mm. Um, it's just not going there and having that experience for me, but to preserve it and to share with the others. And um, this was my first um, serious project, a photographic project in uh, Australia to photograph these descendants. Um, for me... Um, Going there and uh, meeting people, I think that was really important to see. Um, but then uh, there were some uh, some important and really um, really interesting things happened. For example, meeting families for the first time through different uh, events. Uh, uh, one of those events was the time when uh, the Australia Day was celebrated in Adelaide Mosque, the oldest mosque in Adelaide, which was built by the Camilleers. Uh, so one of the descendants came and had a speech. Uh, and on the other side, there was an Aboriginal woman coming from the 
uh, Invasion Day protest. And uh, when he, she heard with her kids, she heard the story of this lady who was talking, um, giving a speech. She was saying, maybe we are cousins. Wow. Yeah. And that's that meeting of these two cousins for the first time in their life uh, through these stories uh, in this beautiful uh, uh, old um, old mosque built by the Camillers was kind of a, a, a signifier that how these these Camillers played an important role where communities meet, where still this reunion happens. And I was fortunate enough to photograph those uh, reunification when these uh, people met for the first time. Um, there were some... Um, some uh, one of the painful experience for me was to see how stolen generation, how racism has impacted their life, how this generational trauma has impacted these descendants' life. So just for uh, the uh, audience's information that because the Camilleers were not allowed to bring their wife or their woman, so they had to marry here if they wanted to stay in Australia. They married a lot of Aboriginal women and the European women. But they faced um, a lot of restrictions. Uh, for example, if they married half-caste Aboriginal women, they were not allowed to register formally. They were not allowed to uh, have children together. Uh, and uh, mostly I found them living in remote, um, small towns, like 14 people living there, and still this descendant was living isolated from 14 people. Mm. Um, so I was uh, really shocked to see all these things, but... The other important thing is that they are like they are a resilience embodied in one person. They always believe that we can move forward from that daunting past of Australia, the impacts and the trauma we have, but we have to overcome those those experiences and go forward. So photographing those individuals, those souls and that energy has been an amazing experience for me. And we did an exhibition in the Hawk Gallery in Adelaide where all these descendants I photographed and they, their children came and met with this new Afghan community it was such an amazing experience. And the film brings this, this community together that, you know, you're not forgotten. We are newcomers from Afghanistan. We meet somewhere here and we can create new stories now. Jolly, can I get you to expand on your collaborators' photography in a way that he might be reluctant to? What, what do you think artistically uh, Muzaffar delves in and what does he bring out of his subjects? Uh, well, Muzaffar captures, uh, he started, he picked up his first camera when he was working for the UN in Afghanistan, so w with an idea to capture these moments that he saw. Um, so very much he captures these moments, very human moments, very uh, ordinary, everyday people, but... Uh, he finds beauty in those moments, in those small communities, in those people like uh, like Frank, who lived in a fourteen person fourteen person town. So Muzaf is very much into the moment and the humanity and the community. So the photographs are often not showy, they're often not very. Uh, they're just small moments that we all enjoy, and they're moments of connection, like the the the, the scene he described at the Adelaide Mosque. There's a beautiful photograph of the two women who met afterwards and realised they were cousins and they were both crying and connecting like that. So so these are the kind of moments of connection that, that I think he's looking for. And I think um, in the film, I think the community itself, there's some kind of hope for Australia, there's some kind of example for Australia in that community, in that resilience of, of culture that they, that they connect 
and that connection between a kind of Anglo-colonial kind of Australia, this new 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 immigrants and Indigenous Australia. There's some kind of example in that community for how we can move forward as a country, all these three elements of Australia who have to combine their stories. Yeah. And Muzaffa, how do people respond to your camera culturally, differently, over the years, regionally? What have you noticed about how people react to when you bring it out? The first time when I was... uh when I got a permission um, from the Afghanistan ambassador that, yes, I can come and uh, photograph. So the expert gave me a thick book of protocols, what should I respect and should do's and don'ts. And when I saw that book and I said, I cannot remember anything from, from here. And honestly, I did not read a page because I believe on, on, uh, on human connection rather than these bureaucratic uh, written uh, rules. So um, when I entered in that, that space where uh, about 45 or 50 Kamila uh, descendants were there and mostly they um, had Aboriginal heritage as well, uh, I was a bit, bit uh, nervous uh, because that was the first time I was like officially saying that I'm taking their pictures. But um, I said salam, I said hi, uh, and I'm from Afghanistan. They were so warm welcoming and connected on this this uh, human level that yeah we are meeting here not from two different uh, planets we live here together and uh, on that moment I realized that you know sometimes these rules books keep us away it creates kind of like restrictions we we, we create firewalls for each other but it's much easier to to break that firewall and go in, directly interact with each other. If someone doesn't want to be photographed, he can tell me politely or I can be very polite. But anyway, in short, that was a really good experience to go and meet them and um, to get the trust in just one meeting. Uh, it, was, I, it was not different than when I was traveling in Afghanistan villages just to say hi and start taking pictures and sharing those pictures to them and see how beautiful you are. And that's what um, I experienced, and I loved it um, in a way that they invited me to their homes, they shared their contacts, they showed me they have this familiar part in their home always, in, uh, in uh, shape of replicas, the photos and the paintings and dunas, the photographs they save. Um, and that's where it gives me hope. Uh, that's where I think it's hidden from the mainstream Australian that yeah we have these immigrants, descendants who contributed immensely in Australia, and they came out through these photographs and human connection. Mm. Well, we're already embarrassed about the photo we're about to take with you on the iPad. Yeah. Uh, to get a glimpse of this visual feast, Watunda, my countryman, is screening tonight at Thornbury Picture House, also tomorrow night at Nova Cinema, and at the Elstonwick Classic. On May 31, where else can we catch it? Uh, that's right. Gosh, we're going all around the country over the next uh, 30 days. So every night between now and the end of the month, we're going to be in a t- different city. Um, so I can't tell you all of them right now, yep. but I really encourage you to come out. We're, um, we're also offering free tickets to any Afghan Camellia descendants who want to come along. And there are about 75 or 80 coming along all over the country. And that makes it a really beautiful uh, night to have them in the audience and to be able to celebrate culture. So the Q&As and the connection 
after the film a really beautiful make make it a really beautiful event and evening all right we're turned at my countrymen we've been speaking with writers and producers jolian hoff and of course the subject muzaffa ali thanks both of you for joining us triple r on fm digital online and via the app thanks so much for being here means a lot so went to the first boot scooting um, class hoedown with the Dirty Bloomers cool. last night. That's so. big. We've been excited for this moment and it happens. Yeah, it's really exciting. But before I dive into that, I went and had a wine before I went to the class just to limber up, you know, and I was just on my own and I was sitting opposite this table and they were having this lively debate and they were trying to figure – it wasn't even a deb- – debate's not the right word. They were just trying to figure out a name of a movie they'd forgotten. Right. And I knew the movie <laughs> they were talking about and I was like so desperately just wanted to turn around and go, Parasite, you're talking about Parasite. <laughs> that That's the movie. It was kind of beyond me why they weren't Googling it. So it's like maybe they were just enjoying the conversation, trying to massage that information out of their brain. I definitely understand that inclination to sort of try to work through it without the Google. Yeah, I I had to respect that space, but it was really hard. (laughs) But it's an interesting one. I was just like the interchat. And you've got to be careful with like piping in with the chat like inter-table conversations. I mean, it can be a lovely way to forge new friendships. It can. Yeah, like how far would that friendship ever really go though, Simon, do you think? I mean, it's a lovely how we met story. Yeah, okay, so romantic. <laughs> oh, not e- well, perhaps romantic, not... but even platonic, you know? Yeah, sure. We've been friends ever since that time when you interjected in our conversation about Parasite at yeah. the Standard Hotel. Yeah, definitely. It, was... it, it just confirms though that I think that you've been listening I see so what you mean. It might make people feel self-conscious about the conversation up to that point. Yeah, Truly. that's always the tricky thing. But then it's like the, like the proximity, like I was so close. It's like how could I not hear? Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, look, it's a, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? Because <laughs> you can easily – I mean, there's some people who love it. You're like – you can hear someone's looking for, I don't know, a condiment. You realise you have it on your table. You're like, oh, here – there you go, like, here's the salt. And, oh, we had the same problem, we couldn't find it, and they're off. People thrive off that stuff. It's like whether, like, I would never choose to, I'd never um, start a conversation with the person I'm sitting next to on the plane either. I feel like it's not as extreme as that scenario because you can't really leave, you can't leave when you're on the plane, but kind of similar vibes. Like, I feel like there's two types of people, people who would strike up the chat mm would maybe do the inter intertable chat. Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting one because you're right, there's an how do you, how do I say this? A sense that if one's sitting on a, a plane, there's no escape. But if mm. if you preface the conversation by saying, Oh, I was I'm just about to go into my book but I couldn't help but notice that you were that it's Parasite, the movie you're talking about, <laughs> and you're making a real scene. Yeah, so you established that this is going to be a very short-lived conversation, but you did want to interject or create some kind of connection yeah. there. Well, and it's also afterwards, once Parasite has been resolved, do you notice the decibels lower yes. for their continued conversation? <laughs> it's almost passive-aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. There was that bloke on uh, South Korean Air this week who um, opened up their plane door <laughs> mid-flight. Yes! <laughs> I didn't I see saw- this. 
Yeah. I saw that footage and it's bizarre because they're all sitting there really calmly. Mm. Like, well, they, just... were, they weren't cut. Some of them like, fainted in, in a row, so they did look calm. Uh, but, yeah, he, he said afterwards that because uh, you're right, I was obviously in retrospect, you're like, did someone try and start a conversation with him and he panicked? Uh, but he's, he said he'd had a tough week at work. Oh. It was burnout. It was a burnout escape. All roads lead to burnout mm. this week, this year maybe. It's I think the so. the year of 2023, the year of the dragon. Yeah. No, not sure what year can, it can is, I ask but I'm so year far, of burnout. Well, indeed. I'm so far behind on the news. Was it, were there any consequences of this action? Oh, he might go. The, you can go to jail, I think, for 10 years, but I'd, I'd suspect that won't happen. Mm. But, yeah, he just pulled a, uh, a koshi midair and <laughs> peaced out. So it was the door that he... Yeah, yeah, because normally if if someone's in charge of the uh, escape door, maybe yeah. you should ask, maybe it's maybe the question should be, are you prepared to sit in the emergency aisle? <laughs> and second to that, have you had a tough week at work? Yes. I'm always struck as well when they I've only been put in the emergency exit row once, but I was struck by they're like if anything happens, no. They give you the instructions and a part of the instructions is that you are that they will say um, emergency three times, emergency, 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 and it's like imagine yelling emergency twice, like on a oh. plane as a staff, just like send the whatever the protocol just is as a into test, action. As a test. <laughs> <laughs> it's a test. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> emergency, but uh, 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 yeah. no, <laughs> not yet. That was a drill. Because I used to, if you umpiring in cricket. You, some people will have a counter or you'll have six pebbles and you'll transfer them to either hand based on how many balls have been bowled. Oh. <laughs> but sometimes you forget which hand. Like, it's plausible in a high-pressure situation I've screamed emergency twice <laughs> and I think I've done it four times. <laughs> and do you start again? Anyway. Anyway. No. Uh, but, yes, boot scooting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it was fantastic <laughs> that we've got merch already. So. Wow, Is that for real? Yeah. Yeah, so um, that looks amazing, doesn't it? Yeah, Kitty is like, um, and there's a what does it say on the back? It Can says you read it down? Dance floor testing. Yeah, Boots so good and, dance floor and there's testing. all different puns on the back of the t-shirt, and it comes in different colours. Um, I think oh, I can't remember the other ones. And what, the puns. what are the shoes on the back? They're just cowboy boots. Yeah, they're oh, just great. boots. And do you wear the cowboy boots? I don't have any cowboy boots, but I'll definitely be getting some. Yeah. Definitely. Like, I have some um, Rossi boots that I wore last night. Yeah, definitely, like... Uh, a, a class that you dress up for. And this is your official merch, the Dirty Bloomers Well, Pitscootin. this is not official. I think this was just the teachers. So there's four girls th- that are going to rotate teaching. So it's now a class because one of the girls who plays in the Dirty Bloomers, I'm not sure whether you've ever heard of it, No Lights, No Lycra. Yes. Oh. So she started that. So she's just got this, like, mentality of, well, let's turn it bigger and – um and so they're kind of going to rotate through teaching and they, they've got the T-shirts and I said, well, can I have one? Amazing. And, yeah, they had headset mics not plugged in. Oh, fun. And um, For of, effect, like Yeah, Madonna. absolutely, yeah, <laughs> effect. They look fantastic, encouraging, you know, different, like next week that I think is kind of there'll be a bit of Shania Twain, so leopard print attire. And is there any risk, I'm not sure if you're wearing sneakers or whatever, but let's say we all mm. – upgrade or move over to the The cowboy boot is there any risk what's the cowboy boot podiatry safety 
Yeah, yeah, mm. well. I mean, like, how do you mean? Well, is it easy to roll your ankle? Yeah, I mean, I guess it potentially with the heel, mm. um, how narrow the style of the boot, but I think worth it. I think a good quality pair of cowboy boots is a sound investment definitely for your feet and just for enjoying life yeah. so i think if there was a rolled ankle or two that's just kind of something i'm willing to wear yeah, yeah i imagine wearing in the boots will be a process and if there is a dirty bloomer strain or sprain i suppose you just scream emergency emergency, emergency. Exactly. <laughs> R. Film reviewer Simone Baldi is taking time out from her glamour-induced jet lag to slum it, talking cinema with us. Morning, Simone. Hello. Your intros are designed to make people hate me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Tall poppy is alive and I well. I to grace you with my presence. <laughs> uh, now, it's I can't work out where you would find the time to watch movies, but you do. <laughs> mm. Well, I just like them and they're for me. Yes. Unlike the rest of my life. Sorry, I can't hear myself. Yep, went to see a movie yesterday. I've not heard of this film. <laughs> the Blue Caftan, because it's quite a small release. Um, it is one of those small European, European-ish um, art films that tend to come and go at our beloved art house cinemas because there is an audience for them, but it's not a massive audience for them. But The Blue Caftan is one that there's been like a big billboard in the... Uh, or there was for a long time a big billboard in the... Um, help me. Escalator. Yeah, yeah, where the escalator is in the Cinema Nova. Oh, yeah, down near the supermarket. So someone spent some money on it. But anyway, it's a film that um, screened at Cannes last year, Um, a Moroccan film funded from various sources around Europe, and it is a film that is uh, fundamentally about... uh, Well, you know, that's not even fair. It's kind of about... It's a repressed homosexual love story between two men. But it's really about a dynamic of differently natured love between one of the men, whose name is Hasim, his wife Mina, and a young man who comes to work with them called Youssef, and the evolving relationship between the three of them. Um, it's set in a Moroccan city called Saleh. I've never been to Morocco. Does anyone know if that's a correct pronunciation? No. Um, in the Medina, um, and it's... Hasim is a ma'alem, which is a tailor of kaftans, of traditional kaftans, who works in the traditional form in a world where increasingly it's increasingly mechanised. Um, you learn all this through the dialogue between the characters. Uh, his, uh, his incredible wife uh, runs the storefront and negotiates the very demanding customers. The implication is that it's, um, it's a very long process, a process of months to have a handmade, hand-embroidered, kaftan made and um so it's quite wealthy and privileged women who want them but they're also very demanding about the timelines and frustrated by you know how this work is like lovingly kind of crafted by Hasim in a back room they bring on Youssef this young man as uh, an apprentice and he seems very devoted to the art form but very quickly um there is a the flowering of an incredibly gentle uh, pure and loving affection between the two of them, unexpressed verbally and only uh, only very 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 lightly um, alighted upon, uh, kind of physically. 
we learn as the film kind of evolves that Hasim, um, while he's, oh God, this actor, I've never seen him in anything before. He has the world's most beautiful, gentle face I've ever seen. Like if kindness were embodied in one human face, it's this guy. He, I've got a doppelganger. There they go, it's true. I'll play that. No. <laughs> um, he, he has been a really faithful husband to Mina and he, there's a great affection, affinity and love and support between the two of them. She's a fierce protector of him um, and he's been loyal to her in so much as he has remained married to her for the duration of their lives. Um, but he visits... Uh, hammam that are like gay bathhouses in Morocco. I did like some cursory Googling and there is actually, um, there is a queer culture in Morocco. There are gay bathhouses in Morocco. It's technically illegal in that country and there are lots of human rights issues around it. But it seems like um, there people don't... L- People don't exist in that world with a with a uh, immediate and terrifying fear of death or persecution. It's just, um, you know, like haram religiously frowned upon and socially it's something that needs to be kind of kept. So anyway, Hasim has kind of this double life that he, he leads with some shame. But the problem with Youssef is that it's not a physical... It's not an expression of a physical need. It's love. So I'm watching this movie and it's an extraordinarily beautiful movie to look at. The the cinematography and the lighting are just it's like looking at um it's like looking at kind of Rembrandt and, and classical art at some points. It's so beautiful, it's so intimate. You get a feel for the culture, but it's not expansive. You're not looking at the streets and, and at lots of different people. Everything takes most of the action of the film takes place in pretty close and intimate shots. But it's just transports you into a world where the shop fronts look different and the their lounge room and their kitchens look different to what we might be accustomed to. So that's really beautiful. In addition to talking about the world of making caftans, that's really beautiful. Um, but anyway, uh, other than getting that transportation into Morocco, which is pretty goddamn nice, in the middle of a Melbourne winter, you know, there's lots of films that are about repressed homosexual love in cultural contexts where for some reason it's it's thwarted and I'm sure you guys can think of a dozen off the top of your head and even just recent, like in cinemas at the moment, The Beautiful of an Age and that French movie I talked about close between the two boys. There's lots of things that kind of explore the themes. What makes The Blue Caftan stand out other than the fact that it's like a completely incredibly assured piece of filmmaking from a Moroccan woman who is like a second film um, is the fact that Mina is really centred in the movie. And from a point of view of talking about kind of gay rights and freedoms, maybe it's in a different kind of political place to what, you know, we might have looked at differently from a point of view of talking about real human lived lives that are, that are you know, can be complicated, looking at them with a profoundly compassionate lens, respecting different kinds of relationships between people and ultimately just having your heart broken to a million pieces for, for everyone, but also kind of healed for all three of them, um, it really stands out in mm. that way. So it's just an incredibly beautiful film. But, you know, we live in an age of like one trillion billion things available on digital streaming platforms, including SBSs, including if you can tap into the Criterion Collection, for those of you with a VPN. Um 
you know, there's just, just so much content out there. So I guess I'm here on a Thursday, <laughs> as I and want to do occasionally, um, to say that if you want to go and see something in the theatre where all of your daily distractions are taken away from you and just be confident that it's a really beautiful piece of filmmaking... The Blue Calf Dan is a good one. <laughs> All right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sounds like its smallness almost helps it its expansive yeah. emotional scope. Oh, one hundred percent. It's just you know, you kinda you like you roll the dice sometimes, you really hope that you're gonna be impacted by something and it's gonna be wonderful when it's just about this kind of little story. Because you know if you're gonna go see the latest MCU movie or there's some spectacle to talk about with Barbie that at least you're going to get a whole bunch of chatter out of it. This is something that you're just really hoping hits. Like, I feel like I've mm. landed on a few of these this year, um, and I have, because mm. Close was one, and Of an Age was one, and The Blue Caftan is one. I feel like with Close, and a sunset with this film as well, there's a real kind of immediacy to the emotional experience, but also like a deep reflectiveness that follows as yeah. well. It seems like it's really lived with you as well, mm-hmm. the tenderness of the film and the beauty of it. It's hard. I mean, if you think about... Not that I've done it, but if you think about the journey between having an idea to producing a script to getting investors on board to working with actors and having a lighting crew, the idea that you could emerge from that process on the other end was something that felt profoundly human and true. It's like a miracle. Mm. It is more of a miracle to me than, even though I'm quite excited to see it, Guardians of the Galaxy Part (laughs) 3. Um, but maybe on par with the miracle that is Abba Voyage, the immersive... Th- sorry, <laughs> I'm going <laughs> completely left field into a thing that my partner just saw in London, which is also amazing for a different reason, which is the Abba hologram. Sorry to confuse wow. everyone. <laughs> I've been awake since 3 a.m. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but also a, a miracle of, of a technology miracle. and emotion <laughs> and human accomplishment. <laughs> Thank you so much, Simon. No, it's true. Forget me at the end of that. Yeah, I really, I really think so. And just, I don't know, it touched me. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really beautiful film. And it sounds like there's also a deep sort of symbolism inherent in the kaftan of the title as well, and that idea of patience and relationships yeah. that unfold over time as well. 100%. And you know that it's coming. There is a lot about the film that is uh, foreseeable, uh, but it doesn't... But, you know, it's, it's kind of the reward of the journey. Mm. Yeah, you said journey. Does that journey? But it, it's okay because it was applied fine. Journey uh, jar, pointing. Uh, it's the Blue Kaftan, a film by Mariam Tazani, and it's released now. Catch it while you can. Yes, Simone Baldi. Thanks very much. That's right, Triple R. Since 2005, The Monthly has supplied Australian readers with singular and lasting stories on culture, politics and ideas, and this June celebrates its 200th issue with brilliant pieces from uh, some of Australia's best-loved writers, including our next guest, author and erstwhile academic historian, Don Watson. Don, welcome back to Breakfasters. Hello. Uh, Heroes and Villains is the name, title of your new article. You reflect on information new to you that paints one of your boyhood heroes as, in your words, a bit of a stinker. Uh, what terrain has this found you dwelling in um my boyhood again um douglas barter was a a sort of freak of nature and um i mean growing up in the uh the wake of the second world war among the few books we had in the house there was reach for the sky 
which was the story of Douglas Bader, written by an Australian, Paul Brickhill. And uh, it was not exactly critical of uh, Douglas, and how could you be? Um, uh, but it was funny, writing the piece, I, I realised that I, I actually remembered whole lines from it, like what he said, what he did, what the nurse said in the corridor after his legs had been amputated. It was, you know, shush, there's a boy dying in there, whereupon Douglas decides he's going to live, and does. And not all of him, but most of him. Mm. And um, he, he was probably my greatest hero, along with Louis Armstrong, I guess, mm. Betty Cuthbert, many others. But uh, he's hard to go past. A man sort of loses his legs in a... showing off in a plane in 1931 or so and then insists on getting back into the RAF when the war starts. They're desperate for pilots, they agree. He becomes a genuine air ace, shoots them down all over Kent and Surrey and the Channel and what have you, and then goes down over France with an extraordinary sequence where he's, the plane is spiralling towards the ground at about 300 miles an hour and he's, his leg is stuck on a rivet in the cockpit. <laughs> so he has to rip it off. And he manages to rip it off by opening the parachute while he's going down, hooked to the plane, which sort of... The leg stays in the plane. <laughs> he, he lands in France and is quickly picked up by the... Just near where his father died after the First World War, a year or two of war injuries. So it just sort of completes the kind of mythic circle in a way, or begins to complete it. He's no sooner put in hospital. And the, the Germans, are, he's so famous on both sides. Goering says you can have another leg and they fly one out. And the Brits, the stinkers, drop the leg off and then go on and bomb... <laughs> on the German troops, wherever they were. Um, but he's no sooner got the leg and he's got the spare leg than he climbs down the hospital wall on knotted sheets and hobbles off in the dark. They find him pretty soon after. What that. gratitude. What gratitude. <laughs> and uh, he, and he, every, everywhere they send him, he tries to escape. And it drives other prisoners mad because he's a bit of a liability if you put him in your escape plans. <laughs> because he's not exactly fast on his feet. <laughs> and you've got to get him through tunnels and things with the tin legs. Anyway, then he, he, he ended up in Colditz Castle, which was where uh, the incorrigible POWs ended up from all over. And because there were large numbers of officers, um, gentlemen like Bader, um, they, they brought in some orderlies from other prisoner of war camps, been of lower ranks, and among them was a Scot who became Bader's valet, and this is where Bader proves what a stinker he was. Mm. <laughs> um, he, uh, this for three years, this little Scot has to carry him up and down the stairs for his bath in the morning, up and down, up and down. He never says thank you. The Scot says later, not once did he ever say thank you. Then, after about a year, the they're doing a prisoner swap and the, and and this obviously not going to send back these airmen because they're a bit dangerous but they agree to sending back some ordinary infantry and and the scots among them to swap with some germans held in british pow camps but Bart says he's not going no no you're my valet you're not going anywhere so he has to spend another two years in captivity rather than getting back it's to like his family inverse of john mccain yes very <laughs> yes um so Bader is a horror. And then after the war, he, um, he 
uh, write an introduction to a, a, a memoir by a, a German, a phenomenal German airman, and he, um, who happens to be, Bart is told later, an absolutely thoroughgoing, unreconstructed Nazi who's been in Argentina helping Joseph Mengele and all these appalling war criminals. Um, Bart is told this and he says, well, damn you, it doesn't make any difference to me. So I decided I'd better cancel him. <laughs> That's what it all comes down to. <laughs> yes. I was wondering, as an historian, yeah, how do you take new information on board and how would we, if, if uh, the study of history is probably in a pretty low place, but w- academically, what do you, what did you learn about how to incorporate new information into the fables that you love? Well, um, I actually, the first, uh, the second book I wrote many years ago now called Caledonia Australis was a sort of job on Angus Macmillan, the discoverer of, sort of discoverer of Gippsland. And I wanted to take this person who was, as they say, iconic in Gippsland itself. I mean, there was not, there were kind of monuments to him everywhere, motels, hotels named after him. The, the electorate of Macmillan was named after him and all this. And Macmillan was in one sense a, a brave man driven out of Scotland by famine. Um, uh, it, it is something to sort of get on a ship and sail to the other side of the world when you're pretty innocent of what the world is actually like. He left a diary which sort of portrays his deep innocence and his fears and his piety, and, you know, his Christian piety. Um, but he ends up in the interests of acquiring great wealth, which he's no good at. Um, he is responsible for several massacres in Gippsland of Aboriginal. Then he ends up being their protector. So there's a deep vein of hypocrisy running through it. But in a way, he's a... I mean, first of all, he's cleared off. You know, he's a con- consequence of clearances in Scotland, ordinary people. And he ends up with his fellow Scots clearing Aboriginal people. So it becomes kind of complicated. How do you judge this man? In the end, you've got to write that into the story. This man did really terrible things. Um, but I I didn't ever become fanatical about getting rid of him, but another um, bloke up in Queensland, uh, Queensland, Gippsland, Peter Gardner. I mean, it was quite personal for me because Macmillan was the man, the explorer, along with Paul Strzelecki in my childhood because that's every house at school was named either Strzelecki or Macmillan and we learnt about them and they were lionised. Um, so I didn't really go on with a bit of a, a bloke called Peter Gardner up there. He was determined to have Macmillan stricken from the record. And in the end he sort of succeeded because the electorate's been renamed, as I understand, and Generally, the man has been taken from the map. It's not a bad thing, but it's. Uh, I, th- I think history has to just simply record on these matters. And if other people then want to say, well, it's not a good idea, I mean, I think it's a good idea to rename the electorate. Um, I'd rename probably most of the Australian <laughs> electorates. I'd name them after plants and trees and things, I think. The member for. Well, the member for Melly is probably the only one who's named after a tree. Um, 
Um, but, and I think it, it's good to counter it. And if there, are, if there are monuments to him, well, either knock him over or put up one next to it saying he did this or mm. some, some explanation. But you've been a political person and a political operator. I'm sure you probably reject that characterisation, I know. But you've been inside the tent. What does nuance do to passion? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It's a good question. Um, and in, in politics, there's not a lot of room for nuance, and less and less. Um, and it's also true that a lot of people, a lot of politicians and a lot of people around them don't know their history from a hole in the ground. And so it does get a little bit um, um, twisted and rendered ridiculous. I mean, people speak about Churchill as if he was, you know, very often, you know, a, a sainted figure. Churchill's career, bar one great moment in... 1940, when he actually saw the world as it really was and basically saved democracy. It was a pretty horrible career apart from that. And he, was a bit, he also was a bit of a stinker, mm. certainly an imperialist and certainly a racist. Um, and made a few mistakes as well, like Gallipoli, the Dardanelles and other things. He had the decency after that to go back to the front with a rifle, so he was... I can't imagine our modern politicians doing such a thing. But you, we we have to sort of uh, the thing about history is that you uh, you can't just decide this is a good guy and this is a bad guy. You can certainly decide there's absolutely no doubt that Hitler was a bad guy, Stalin was a bad guy, many of them are bad guys. On on our side, it's a little harder. But there is that thing about to, to understand to, to really know what's going on. You have to walk in the other person's shoes. I think that's true about Putin and Zelensky, actually. I mean, I'm all for Zelensky in Ukraine and I hope to God the Russians get driven out of Ukraine. On the other hand, it would have helped if people had thought in the previous 30 years that if you want to really create a Putin, you do what the West did in every sense. You create a, a paranoid condition where a person like Putin is going to exploit it. You'd lie about what you're going to do with NATO. You, uh, you just couldn't have done more to make a Putin than what they did. In the same way you can say, well, you know, in, in many ways Hitler was made by Versailles with a, that sort of determination to punish Germany as if they were alone uh, the cause of the First World, mm. First World War. They were, played, they were the primary bastards in the case. Some of them were. But you've still got this... I always think about the First World War well. How do you look at it? You say, good and bad, but were all those Germans who got killed bad? <laughs> um, or were they a bit like you and me, who just found themselves caught in the, in the vortex of, of history? We might uh, continue this conversation, if you don't mind. Triple. Author and essayist Don Watson is with us upon the publication of his latest piece, Heroes and Villains, in the June issue of The Monthly. We're talking about the dichotomy of good and bad. Uh, I noticed that there was a piece in The Times that, that English and literature degrees are cratering and the number of degrees awarded in history in the UK uh, and history of art have fallen by almost a third in a decade. What do you think, what do you make of the state of humanities and its effect? Uh, I think it's very depressing. Uh, when I... Went to, when I went to university. Um, 
If anyone had told me that history departments, philosophy departments, literature departments would actually decline dramatically, you know, from staff of 40 or more to a skeleton, and or philosophy completely gone, anthropology gone in many places, you, you simply wouldn't have believed them. We imagined that the, the trajectory was upwards or at least level, but they've collapsed. And I think it has all sorts of consequences. Um, among them, you know, perhaps the most the kind of quantitative one is that I think it's probably connected with the difficulty of selling books, particularly non-fiction books these days. I mean, people don't read history anymore. That's why I said in the thing, you know, we could uh, cancel the whole time and no one had noticed because no <laughs> one's reading about it anymore. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's a good lesson for anyone who thinks that what they're doing um, is likely to last because you're gone very quickly when you're gone. Um, but I, I think it would be... I don't think it makes sense anyway. I think we should know by now that if you take that sort of broad contextual understanding out of our mental universe, you lose a lot. And the idea of sort of simple vocationalism, while tempting and seems commonsensical, actually isn't. Um, if you're talking about creating a good society, which most of us think is better than a bad society, then understanding stories and being aware of of the um, the nuances of life is, is, is at the very least a sort of um, counter to tribalism, if you like, and the, the sort of vast divides we now have, mm. which seem quite unconquerable to me. I don't know how you'll ever, you know, bridge the gap um, and get... No, it was it, it was always thus up to a point, but it's never been quite as lunatic as it is now. Yeah. Yeah. And it would inoculate you, would it not, against the dichotomies that you describe in your essay, easy dichotomies, good and bad. I mean, they don't really hold water when you look at an issue seriously. No. I mean, you can end up with pure evil, but you end up with it more often, I think, when you don't know, when, when you go about it stupidly or ignorantly. I always think it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like hitchhiking, which we don't, no one does anymore quite sensibly. They used to do a lot of it, and you never know who you're getting in the truck with. <laughs> That's the thing, and it might be someone who's very plausible and you like his opinions, but then he might do something horrible, or he just might be so boring you wish you'd never get your ass to get out. <laughs> um, and I think that's a bit it's a bit like that when you work your way through any of the humanities subjects, you're sort of trying to find what this person is really like. And then you've got to balance, you know, one set of attitudes against one or two others. Um, but once you once you give up on that and just say, this is the case, this person is bad, um, that's very tempting. And I'm sure that's why, you know, that's how you get right-wing shock jocks. Some of them have come from the left, but they just find that there's more money in, in doing it without too much thought, just bang away. But once you give up on that, I think you actually give up on the whole democratic project in a way. Um, you just have to, if you're going to live in a liberal democracy, you just have to make certain, recognise that some decisions are hard to make, Some, none of them are perfect. You have to sort of live with that and work your way through it. And if you give up and just say bad um, or good, um, you're really imitating... And you go in for cancelling without too much thought about it. 
you're really imitating autocracies. I mean, that can't be good for democracy. Do you ever write anything polemical, even in your spare time, and maybe delete it? Or what's your relationship with...? Uh, less and less. You know, I, I look at... Um, occasionally I look at the text of speeches given by our leaders and um, I've, what I see there is not the fault of the speechwriters. I see the, the geniuses surrounding the politicians playing safe and turning what might be verbs into kind of dull, abstract nouns and bromides of one kind or another. And, you know, oh, for God's sake. You know, I noticed a few years ago I reread the Whitlam's famous epoch-making Blacktown Address, which was written by Graham Freudenberg. Not, the fair go is not mentioned. There you are. There's the, there's the, there's the great Labor speech. No need. You don't have to say fair go, <laughs> which is such... Bullshit anyway, isn't mm. it, really? I mean, here we have, what was it recently? 93% of the wealth created since 2008 has gone to 10% of the population and still we talk about the fair go. Mm. I mean, even if it were roughly true, I mean, we've said it too often for it to mean anything anymore. It's like, you know, touching an icon of some description, you know. It's... it's um, it, The day when politicians actually again, or much less business leaders and the rest, speak in kind of, what would we say, adventurous language, language which is actually on the edge, language which is actually trying to say what they're doing and recognising, you know, that while this is a good idea, it actually can't be done just now or whatever. That will be a great day for all of us. Do you have another weasel words in you? A couple of people have mentioned it lately. Uh, I'm sure that, I'm sure there's another one there, but I don't know whether I have the energy to dig for it. I'm very do you still get mail? Do you still? Oh, uh, uh, very occasionally, people send me something they found. But I've closed the website. I had someone running that from years, and um, I think she got sick of it <laughs> too, <laughs> too. Understandably, the word multiple is the one that gets me these days. Several, few, many, and all those other words are just replaced by multiple. Have you noticed that? I've noticed... Multiple uh, injuries. Multiple uh, yes, multidisciplinary. I, and multis, yes. <laughs> but everything, if there's more than one, it's multiple. <laughs> How that happened, I don't know. Multiple impacts. Impactful, is, which is one I thought would never last, but it's everywhere now. Mm. You know. Anyway. Capacity. People use, oh, I don't have the capacity for that today. That's like, right. yeah. Yes, well, there's capacity building. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Triple R probably needs some capacity building, I don't know. <laughs> Getting me along won't help. <laughs> I wanted to mention, because you're a lover of prestige television, and speaking of the word capacity, it seems like audiences do have the capacity for nuance. They can enjoy villainous characters. Uh, and I'm wondering, does that fall away when they apply that character assessment to real life sometimes? Well, it sort of it, it has become the, the theme, hasn't it, you know, of all these long-form TV things where they... How how bad can you make the character and keep your keep and keep the sympathy of the audience? It's extraordinary. Breaking Bad was a good example. Deadwood, um, appalling, murderous people. Oh, don't don't let him be killed or anything happen. Don't let them catch him. The Americans was another one. There's atrocious oh. Soviet agents who are slaughtering people every night, breaking their necks and stuffing them in boxes. 
And still you hang on, please don't let the <laughs> catch you. I don't know how that works. Um, but it does show that we're, we're more complicated than the, um, the old rah-rah imperial historians thought we were. Um, which is a good thing, I suppose, but it'll probably... I don't know whether we'll go back to Bambi again, or maybe... Um, but I mean that's a good it's a good example. I mean no one would have made a film in the nineteen fifties about um you know really complicated British bulldog types fighting the Nazis. It had to be, you know, Jack Hawk they always were chewing pipes. Bader always had his pipe in his mouth. Um and um I'm sure he sent this poor little bloke around to get his tobacco <laughs> and where they got the tobacco. Anyway, um but you just naturally believed in these um, these fierce men, and they, and of course they usually had a, a little woman at home, you know, keeping the porridge on. Um, it has got more complicated, and that's better, you know. I think that is that is better. But I, th- I still think we need to um, uh, have people reading history, all those all those things which which proved to us how baffling we are, you know, because we are. And uh, the terrific thing about a democracy, for all its flaws, is that it it sort of intuitively understands that. I mean, it's built into the idea that human beings are uh, bewildering sort of creatures, Um, as your news items demonstrate. (laughs) Why would we create a bunch of robots that are going to destroy <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So it's endlessly interesting, isn't it? And we should give ourselves credit for being baffling almost. Well, totally. It certainly recognise that that's what we're like. But, you know, it, um, it's... We could talk about it we, we for will. a very long while. Exactly. Well, all of this is explored in, uh, well, some of it, in Heroes and Villains, the latest piece of Don Watson in the June issue of Monthly. Don Watson, uh, it's a great pleasure to have you on Breakfasters. Good to be here. <laughs> Triple R. Time to check in with local literature with the astronomically gifted Fee Wright. Morning. Gosh, every week you just you just make me aware of my imposter syndrome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, that is that is a good uh, referential from for the astro towards the title of this this book, and that's the way I'm taking it. <laughs> the Heart Is a Star um, by Megan Rogers. It's out via Fourth Estate and um, HarperCollins Australia. Uh, it's brand new local book, local author, um, and I think she's written one other book, but I think that was non-fiction from memory. So this is her first fiction endeavour, uh, and it's all about Layla. So Layla is in the prime of midlife. She's an anaesthetist, which I've been resenting Megan Rogers for writing that as her career because I've been practising like a lot and yeah. I still didn't quite Did get great. it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the support. Um, so she she's a doctor that makes people sleep for a living. Uh, she has, to, has a pretty busy life, you know, two kids, husband, all that kind of stuff. But her life is this really complex 
but also really understandable and relatable kind of thing. So she's having issues with her husband. There have been some betrayals on both sides. And now just before Christmas, her mother is threatening self-harm, knowing that Layla is due to visit very, very soon. So um, her mum is saying, I'm going to hurt myself. And Layla's due to visit the following week for Christmas. And so Layla has this decision to make at the very start of the novel, which it's it's on the back cover, so it's not giving this away, but shall she go down to Tasmania from Queensland, potentially causing further problems to her marriage um, because she's leaving her husband with the kids, la, 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 um, to make sure that her mum's okay, knowing that her mum has... Um, ostensibly, I guess, cried wolf about mental health problems in the past. Now, at this point, I am going to give a big content warning for this book because it does deal quite heavily with a lot of very heavy topics um, and self-harm and and suicide are very, very strong themes throughout the entire text. And if um, this discussion this morning um, is is setting anything off for you personally, please please feel free to call Lifeline on 131114 or you can always um, check out their website, lifeline.org.au. But, um, and also we'll be finished talking by, about this at 8am, so if you're just not feeling it, flick it off. Um, but, yeah, the book deals with mental health problems really, really uh, deeply. And I would say respectfully, I've read, I actually wanted to read reviews online to see what other people think. I often try to avoid online reviews. Um, and there were, I would say 90% of people do, do say, yes, it is dealt with very, very respectfully. I mean, it's a difficult topic, um, but to center your book around believing people because what Layla decides to do is to go. She decides to leave. She goes down to um, Tasmania, taking one of her mum's best friends with her. So one of her mum's best mates is um, living in um, a retirement village in Queensland near her. And they go on like this original odd couple kind of, I don't know, in my head it's like Thelma and Louise but with an age gap kind of trip down to Tassie to make sure that her mum is okay. And during that time it's all very reflective. So Layla is reflecting on her life, her childhood, her relationship with her mum, her relationship with her sister, um, also her relationship with her dad who passed away when she was quite young. And so she's reflecting on all of these things and it does this, it's quite Rogers has this real gift, I would say, of making a book that isn't necessarily action-packed. The things are happening not necessarily in the same time as Layla is describing them. So, so much of this book is her in transit recalling things that have happened. And so I love books that navel gaze. I love a, a reflective text that is just I love it I love it so much Rachel Cusk whatever get around it can't get can't get enough (laughs) and so this is like reflective but there's still lots of stuff happening because she's describing all of the things of her childhood her experiences what what made her decide to become a doctor what made her and her mother um fall out you know the choice of who she married um all of these things are, are described in amazing detail, but it also means that there's pretty much constantly something happening, but that something might be the recollection of 
something else. Did that make sense? I feel like I got too deep in the circle. um, Well, it sounds like an ever-expanding circle of perspective in the sense that we're zooming out and getting a sort of broader, broader picture of how we've arrived at this point and the interconnectedness of our upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's quite um, skilled as well, the fact that I was able to keep all the timelines straight Um, because it's so easy to get muddled in a in a book when you're going backwards and forwards because you're not just going back to the same time you're going back to when she was five and then when she was 13 and maybe she's in her 20s and she's meeting her husband and she has um she has uh, a boyfriend on the side and they they meet and you don't actually meet them in real time she meets her boyfriend after she's had an argument with her husband about potatoes mm. and you get to hear the argument but the argument is happening in the past, you know. So I really liked how it must have been – I was thinking about this when she was when I was reading. I was like, plotting this book out <laughs> must have been such a pain. But all their hard work made it, it easy for you as a reader. <laughs> it really came – like, it didn't feel hard. But I was just having one of those – I was like, I actually know where everyone is in this point in That's time. A, what a skill to yeah. be discursive but coherent. Look, see, now what a skill to be precise and I can't even do it because I don't have that skill that, that Daniel has to sum up my five minutes of waffle. No, um, but, yeah, so, so, so much of the book is told, um, internal monologue and reflection by Layla. Um, the relationship with her mum is, is fascinating. The family reflection stuff is really challenging because Layla is choosing to listen to her mum having listened to her mum in the past and having had her mum kind of abuse that trust, I guess, is how I would put it. And her husband says some fairly unkind things at various points in the book, but they're also unkind things that I've definitely heard people say about people with mental illness, which is not reflective or respectful or any of those sorts of things. Um, I really did want to emphasise about the book um, a lot of the stuff that she's reflecting on is, like, potentially stressful and triggering, um, but it was so fascinating. Like, I was, like, I couldn't I, – I read it in about – I think I read it in the afternoon because I really just needed to know if her mum was okay. Mm. I'm not going to tell you, but I just needed to know. Um, and, I mean, I often do read books in – in like maybe one, two, three sittings, but I didn't actually plan to for this one. I cancelled some plans. So <laughs> I was like, "Can I meet you in two hours?" Because I've, I've really got to, I've got to know, got to know oh, what happens here. What a testament. So, and what a, it sounds like a fabulous sort of meditation on the complication of life. Yeah, because it's it's like the mundane of midlife, but also the beauty of love and trust so like the arguments that she has with people are so understandable and relatable the problems that she has with work I'm not an anaesthetist make people sleep for a living (laughs) I'm not that person I don't do that but her problems that she experiences with workplace um, bureaucracy and personalities are all very familiar sorts of sorts of things so it is like this this mundane familiar midlife but then also she just has such a beautiful turn of phrase Mm. the prose um she's also making some really like there's a lot of literary 
analogies, allegories. He's the heart as a star in particular. Um, I haven't even mentioned this yet. I've just realized, but there's so much. Um, Layla loves astronomy. Her dad built um, an observatory in rural Tassie on their property, and so she grew up loving um, astronomy. And so she actually refers to like old astronomical texts. She talks to the history of space. She she just loves the natural sciences, including being a doctor. Like she has this approach which is almost philosophical of the natural sciences altogether of, of philosophy, the human body and space. And the way that that is described is really beautiful and just adds this, this depth to, to Layla, which is, which is wonderful. Mm. Uh, without having read it, I also uh, hearing you talk about it and the idea of storytelling through memory, like let's mm. say there's a memory of brothers feuding over a milk supplier. I don't know. And, and, you don't have to have to be on the ground. Like you just mm. get the headlines with the memory. Mm. Like this happened and this happened and move on instead of yeah. being on the ground, the paddock and all of that. Like you can pack a lot in with memory. Yeah. And then you also, the thing that I love is that you get to hear like Layla's, again, not necessarily the blow by blow, the the, the memory of what it felt like, mm. not necessarily the memory of the events, which then goes on to be, um, you know, so she's kind of estranged from her sister and, you know, that's one of the kind of the mysteries of the book, why is the sister not around? And so you get this this memory of the sense of what it felt like for her sister to leave. And then when they have conversations, you get to kind of feel that the sister is reacting to Layla's emotional sense of the past, not necessarily what actually happened. Right. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah, because, yeah, it's just that's it. Memories are our own, but it doesn't mean that they're accurate. Yeah. yeah, so it's yeah. interesting to kind of hear the different perspectives and learn more about the character in that way. Yeah, it sounds like fascinating. Yeah, and it was – this kind of makes me sound a bit heartless, but I wasn't particularly uh, interested in the events that were happening in real time. Like I was interested in them, but I really just – I loved all the reflection. I I mean that's just – that's no secret to many people – that listen but I love the reflection in in writing um and I really loved how Rogers dealt with with time and space in that sense beautiful well the heart is a star fair right burn through it Megan Rogers and it's out fourth estate in HarperCollins Australia the heart is a star fair right thank you thank you triple R Some of the most popular and critically acclaimed TV shows um, have wrapped up this week. So this week saw Ted Lasso, Barry, Succession, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and The Flash all air their finales. So huge week. Obviously, you two uh, big Succession fans Daniel, I know also you watch Ted Lasso as well. Are you up to date with – and also just um, flagging, there'll be no spoilers no in spoilers. this. Don't worry. We're just talking about finales in general, emotions, just riding the waves. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ted Lasso finale was yesterday. I watched it. It was terrific. It was very emotional. It was, and it's, you know, it's cheesy in mm. part, but mm. it's – To be expected, I imagine. They're so expertly done, it seems, a lot of these uh, – shows now but it doesn't it's not always the case so you have to take it for granted when something does wrap up in a satisfying way yeah i was interested i was thinking about and i haven't seen barry i know people who love Uh, barry but i don't think it's a coincidence that 
say, Jesse Armstrong, the creator of Succession, mm. and Bill Hader of Barry and uh, Jason Sudeikis of, you know, Ted Lasso on SNL all got their start in sketch comedy. I, mm. And they've all kind of transitioned to dramas. Mm. And I... I don't think that's a coincidence. No, definitely not. In what way? Well, yeah, I think that, like, comedy involves, like, examining society and structures and definitely, like, darker parts of life, subverting it and, yeah. So, like, at the heart of a comedy is drama. Yes. basically. Um, God, I sound like I'm giving a cheese no, here. I'm, I'm wrapped, but, but yeah. yeah, that's 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 what I think, absolutely. Like, you know, yes, they'll find the joke, but at the heart, usually, not always, but often there's, you know, something very true and, yeah, and a lot of the time it's like, you know, injustice or terrible people or like duality of personalities and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. And is there also a sense of just the sheer volume of ideas that are generated in those writing rooms and also the sense of acceptance if many of them are discarded just in pursuit of, of the opti- Oh, yes. I think if, if you're – that's a really interesting point. Mm. Yeah, in a – you have to have a very thick skin in a writer's room. And, yeah, it's, it's just commitment to the idea, whatever idea wins. What's so fascinating hearing Jesse Armstrong talk about succession is that if he's talking to someone who has a theory – on a character, mm. he's like, oh, yeah, like maybe that is the motivation. Like, it, This is such an openness. It's such an openness to some – He, would, if anyone would know, it would be Jesse Armstrong <laughs> mm. and yet he's telling a viewer that maybe their analysis is right yeah. because it's a real rich life character. He's not defensive or fragile about, well, I created it. And that's <laughs> right. He's mine. Yeah, and, and I think also – you're right that the, say, succession, a lot of, you know, everyone talks about the actors and the actors are obviously insane, uh, insanely talented, but the, and the casting's extraordinary, but the, so much of, they don't get a lot of screen time because it's a giant ensemble, so you have to do a lot with a little and you have to condense a lot of ideas quickly and that tends to be what comedy's remit as well. Absolutely, which is, yeah, yeah totally. Well, no, that's fascinating because I know that you've been in a lot of writing rooms yourself, so just kind of having that experience and, yeah, I like the thread that you draw between the, the three finales that we're talking about and how they all have origins in that kind of an environment. But we were speaking yesterday about finales that have, Really not done well. (laughs) Nat, do you have any shows that really shat the bed? Oh, wow. I mean, I don't... I'll go first. Yeah, you go first. Dexter. Oh, no, I still am deeply upset by this. We were talking briefly about it yesterday, but... Was it... But that wasn't so much in the finale. Was it like a slow decline? It was a slow decline, and then the, the finale was... A precipitous drop. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was slow and then light speed. <laughs> yeah. So were you, yeah, were you almost expecting it though, but maybe not at that dramatic, that, that the finale would be that disappointing? Uh, Shocking. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'd, I'd given up. I, it was more, I was going through the motions at that point. Yeah. Uh, so listeners says True Blood, whole last season, but also finally dog shit. There you uh, go. There you go. Uh, See, I'm terrible. I'm good on you for sticking with it because I'm so definitely noticing that I, I'll drop off mid-season, uh, mid-season, yeah, 
with a few seasons to go, I won't stick out a show if it's no. Not I, doing I really for admire that the sense of self-preservation involved <laughs> in mm. sort of have, you know obeying that instinct that things are sort of potentially diminishing returns, and you sort of yeah. Yeah, but I definitely like have a f- like I feel it would be nice to be a part of that conversation to go on that you know journey sorry couldn't think of another word um of a show even if it is it's slow demise and you know to be a part of that conversation and and be able to pinpoint kind of where it Mm. went wrong you know it's nice rather than just jumping ship there's another nomination for true blood i would throw in weeds that did that that went it would decline i loved weeds and then i just you just stop watching yeah and so and then it's not until after you realize oh Mm. Yeah, you, you know, I you stopped watching. It wasn't even a didn't even feel like a choice. It felt like it rejected me. <laughs> it literally was just yeah. pushing you off the couch. Uh, Homeland. No, mm. I never saw that. But was this a, another instance of a disappointing? Yeah, phenomenon? I mean, Homeland. I mean, it might be great, and I just fell out of love with it. But mm. I thought Homeland was one of the most extraordinary pieces of television mm. I've ever seen, and it just overstayed its welcome. Definitely. I think that's the thing. Like, what's the sweet spot? I wonder with the number of seasons for a show. Well, I know well, that you were mentioning earlier in the week that Jesse Armstrong had a concept of continuing it and was hoping to be talked out of the <laughs> idea of this being the final season, but never was. So, yes. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And interesting, all of the commentary that has surrounded this finale season that we find ourselves in. I was mm. reading a great article in The Guardian this week, which was kind of examining the historical perspective of shows which have really satisfied um, mm. the, the viewers um, and those which have kind of left a sense of open-endedness and ambiguity, like Sopranos famously, mm-hmm. yep. and then others that sort of really wrap up with this huge sense of legacy and farewell, like MASH, for example. So yep. mm. Seinfeld Still. was another one which was kind of a bit contentious, I think, in that Yes. View. What are your thoughts for any spin-offs for Succession? Do you think that there will be one? I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard anyone raise it. Mm. Uh, I would like – there's there's some relationships in that show, and, again, no spoilers here. And it is – there was a text coming in saying that Jerry, the character who played Jerry, the uh, extraordinary actress, was – uh, what was the comment there? That maybe there was no character for Jerry, but the, the actress came in and just smashed it out of mm. the park, maybe for something else. So they created. I was, saw an interview with James Cromwell, who plays Logan Roy's brother, and James Cromwell is effectively the character that he plays. Like they just cast uh, an, an analogue and uh, got in there. So we, we've got the good wife apparently went off the boil <laughs> and Walking Dead. I can testify to the good fight. I was absolutely devoted to the good fight, which was a spin-off mm-hmm. of the good wife, I think. Oh, I'd maybe be, I'm wrong. I'd definitely be hesitant to watch a spin-off for some reason. Like, I don't know it, it why. It feels like there is a real sense of – well, anyway, you're right, no spoilers. So probably shouldn't go too deep into the succession discussion. I hadn't thought about it and it doesn't seem immediately sort of clear to me whether or not that would be a creative option that is explored. Mm. But um, I am interested, yeah, seeing all these texts coming through. It's so fascinating how uh, polarising some of these programs are because I, I read that Six Feet Under was considered one of the most satisfying from a viewer's perspective, but I think that there's one viewer or one listener here who didn't necessarily share that well, sentiment. Well, yeah, that is, that is unusual because Six Feet Under, the mm. finale is iconically impressive and tear-jerking, uh, especially with, the, I think, well, Sia. Well, that's right, that song, Breathe, which mm. is so, yeah, emotional. Uh, I remember loving 24 and then uh, that just almost comically running out of steam. Yep. 
uh, House of Cards. I thought I would always watch that to the end. But you didn't? I didn't. Yeah. Mm. But it's, yeah, it's good to, you're right, it's good to just let go. Yeah, look, sometimes I think it's there's a, a balance. But for me, maybe it's a lesson I need to kind of persevere, stick with the show a bit more and maybe, yeah, a bit of letting go. Mm. For some other people. But just quickly, there are some relationships in Succession where it's people like, uh, this is this goes to the interpretation of characters and where even the people who work on the show are open to interpretations. Mm. But when they'll say, like, look at this relationship, it's horrible, they're all nasty people. I'm like, uh, well, they obviously have a good sex life and the banter is on game, on yeah. point. So, I don't know, I'm hopeful for them. You, you think that they can make it through. <laughs> exactly. a, quest, a quick question on Succession because it seems to obviously polarise people and so much of that is that these characters are just, like, deeply flawed and unlikable and that seems to be, like, the case people make for not watching it Mm. and then the case for you know people who just love it they're like no if you can push through it like the writing the humor like it's it's ultimately like really funny and I've heard several people say or recommend watching it through the lens of like a comedy how do you feel about that well, yeah, I, th- I mean, it's... It is a comedy, would you say, or...? No, but, I mean, Jeremy, uh, uh, even the people who work on the show, Jeremy Strong, is that the actor's name? I he, believe so. Yeah, he says it's a tragedy, uh. and he plays it like a tragedy. And it, anyway, comedy should be played straight anyway. Everyone's playing it so straight on that show, and that's why... I mean, if any, if you look at the writing, some of the writing is so, like brainy and it's it's almost implausible to believe that anyone would generate <laughs> such a wit extemporaneously but the acting is so good at all it does genuinely sound uh, yeah, spontaneous i couldn't agree more so yeah I, I agree the complexity just the exceptional performances the socio-political commentary there is so much humor that does infuse those tragic qualities that it yeah, feels difficult to distill it to, to yeah. one or another genre. But I can understand seeing it through that lens, mm. definitely. Yeah, I've got to admit as well something here. Like this week, hearing you two talk and, and other people, the broader like, discussion and passion for succession and other shows, like I'm straight up jealous. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, I wish I was in there. wish I was in the sanctum. But so I think I'm what I'm going to do and maybe – um, yeah, for anyone else who feels like they've missed the boat, you know, just maybe we'll just sit out kind of the hype online and then watch it in our own time and maybe we'll seek each other out. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.